after doing Hot Girls Drink Milk and Martinis Are Back and Dime Square is Dead, there's this expectation that I'm going to have hot takes and I'm okay with the, the angry comments online as well because my life doesn't depend on people liking my writing. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Emily Sundberg has a knack for writing stories that get people talking. The freelance writer and mind behind the business newsletter Feed Me has an expert eye for trends in the food space and beyond, like the return of whole milk and the rise of the shoppy shop. You know, those cute curated grocery stores that all seem to carry the same made-for-Instagram products. We're thrilled to have her on the podcast to forecast the drink of the summer, the current state of founders in the DTC space, and much more. It's a fun episode, and I hope you'll enjoy. Emily Sundberg, thanks for coming on the Taste Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to talk to you about like a cornucopia of topics that I think you have insight on because um, when else do I get like a front row seat to do that? And to start out, I want to ask, are the hot girls still drinking whole milk? All the hot girls I know are absolutely still drinking whole milk and they're they're drinking more of it even than two years ago when that story first dropped, I think. <laughs> Can you give context maybe for people that haven't, that don't know immediately what we're referring to, what, what the story was? Sure. So I was traveling um, during the summer of 2021 and I came back and something that I picked up was that all of the alt milks that we're crazy about here in New York at all the coffee shops didn't really exist overseas yet. Um, I was in in Paris specifically where I sort of picked up that there were no long lists of drink adjustments. So I emailed my um, my editor at New York Magazine and I said, you know, I, I noticed this when I was traveling that all the girls are drinking whole milk and not thinking twice about it. Um, and he was like, okay, maybe, maybe not. Then I went out and I was back in New York and I was starting to listen to orders of my friends in New York and seeing I follow a few people that work at coffee shops. Um, My friend Mika works at Dimes and she tweeted something about hot girls drinking whole milk. And I was like, okay, this is something that's trickling into New York. Like I'm, I'm seeing that there might be like a return to the land here in terms of milk preferences. Um, And then I wrote a general trend story about people not going so hard with soy milk and oat milk and all these other things. And that one quote from Mitka about hot girls drinking whole milk really exploded. And and a lot of people agreed with it. You know, they there were a lot of people who were saying, I've been drinking whole milk the whole time. A lot of people said, I found out that oat milk has all these thickeners and sugars in it, and I don't want to drink that anymore. And then a few days later, um, the Oatly stock kind of got fucked. So I don't know if it was contributed to that. But um, yeah, that was my little hot girl's whole milk story. Claiming that energy that the Oatly stock plummeted because of the Grub Street piece. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to take that. Yeah, I got some nice emails, though. Like the a few people that work in Vermont um, government emailed me and they were really grateful because they have a huge dairy industry there. And I think that their practices are probably better than some other places in the country. And they were really excited about that. Um, I got a lot of really angry emails from PETA people saying you're promoting murder. 
Um, it was pretty uh, divisive, but most of my stories are. <laughs> yeah, that's why I wanted to lead with this, because I think that you have such a talent of writing these trend stories that provoke a really strong reaction in people, like whether or not they're in favor or they want to show off how much they disagree with you about that. And I'm curious, like, how do you find these ideas? And do you often know that they're going to be kind of uh, provoking this reaction in some way? Uh, so... I spend a lot of time online, but I also spend a lot of time out. So I go to a lot of parties. I go to a lot of dinners. I try to spend time with new friends. I network as a big part of my my week and sometimes day. I try to spend a lot of time with a lot of people. And when I take all that in, um, you know, sometimes it's the middle of the night. Sometimes it's the subway home, whatever. But, you know, when I hear things two, three, four times, and begin to notice a trend, I then sort of do a litmus test back out to the world. So I'll text different age or groups of friends and say like, hey, is this resonating with you? Is this something that you've seen? You work in a drugstore, you work in a wine store, you're a professor, you're another writer, like what do you think of these things? And pretty immediately I know something's going to take off. I think another thing that I have with a lot of the stories that I write An advantage that I have is that I'm not on staff at a magazine, so I don't have a larger board of people who could potentially say, like, we can't write like that anymore, Emily, or we need to make these advertisers happy, or, you know, you have a specific beat here. I have more of a relationship with magazines where I can pitch an idea, and if they like it, great, and they'll take a risk on it, and if they don't, like, they can easily say no. Um, So I think part of the reason I'm able to do the stories that I do is because I'm freelance. And now after doing Hot Girls Drink Milk and Martinis Are Back and Dime Square is Dead, there's this expectation that I'm going to have hot takes. And I'm okay with the, the angry comments online as well, like because my life doesn't depend on, you know, people liking my writing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to talk about the way that these things exist online versus talking about conversations in real life. Because like when I think of you as a writer, I feel like you're somebody that was very much trained in this online space, but you don't necessarily take it that seriously. And one of the biggest issues I have with people that are chronically online is that they take everything so seriously. My life has been pretty public for most of my adult career. I worked in social media and I've just always sort of had a relationship with the larger, in quotes, readership that I've developed. Uh, do I take things seriously? I, I guess I know that I have like a really fulfilling life outside of my writing. So I'm able to see it as like a vehicle of starting conversations and um, obviously make cash. But I have I have day jobs that that support me so I can sort of write the stories that I do. And I'm pretty vigilant about what I put out there. Like I don't think I've ever written or said something that if it was voiced back to me, I would have to apologize for it. And I try to live like that um, just through the stories that I put out or even tweets or comments that I make. I've developed quite a bit of vigilance around all of that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I, I want to think talk about another story of yours that is actually like a very offline piece, which is about the shoppy shop, which I was so delighted by. So I'm wondering if first you could just define what a shoppy shop is, or maybe you tell people some morning signs if they've walked into something <laughs> that they're in a shoppy shop. So uh, in simplest terms, a shoppy shop is when you walk into a space and see a retail setup with all of these brands that you were first introduced to, probably on Instagram. Could you name a few maybe? Sure. Um, Big Night in in 
Greenpoint is definitely a shoppy shop. There's this new store downtown called Pop-Up Grocer that is certainly a shoppy shop to me. Um, There's a store in Los Angeles called Wine and Eggs, and that was in the story as well. I would consider that a shoppy shop. But it's not just these stores, right? Like, So you're seeing similar retail setups in hotel lobbies Or you might even start to go to your wine store or bookstore and start to see, you know, olive oil and squeeze bottles and glass jars of spices and, uh, you know, certain chocolate bar brands and be like, wait, I am seeing this thing everywhere I go. It's not really native to a place. It's not like, oh, this is my favorite Midwestern ice cream brand or, um, Uh, salt brand from the Pacific Coast. It's like these things are born on Instagram and they live everywhere. So I don't really know where they're from, but I've probably seen the packaging online or I've heard their founder speak in um, some forum at some point. Yeah. Um, And then like, what's the take on the shoppy shop that the article is presenting? There wasn't really a take, which is part of the reason it unraveled the way it did. I wasn't saying these things are good or bad. I was putting language to the fact that they existed. I also didn't coin the term shoppy shop. I I found that from one of the people that I interviewed who had a sort of viral TikTok series about this term. But I I was pointing out that these things exist. um, And I was pointing out that Uh, There's this sort of secondary term that came into the story called small washing, which was that a lot of these businesses pride themselves on being small or woman owned or uh, local to a certain area. And they they really went hard on that as a selling point. So you really believe that you were supporting this tiny small business. But then when you dug a little bit deeper, you could see that they've raised a ton of cash or They have uh, venture backers or whatever. And again, I didn't say that that was good or bad, but people took it that way. And then the third part of the story was that um, there's this massive underlying software called FAIR, which is really an online wholesale marketplace where anybody anywhere could log on and order um, 100 or more uh, items from one of these small internet-y brands, which is why if you go in the middle of Nebraska or Miami or now even overseas, you can see uh, these like Graza olive oil or Omsom or Fly by Jing or whatever. And and um, you don't need to go to trade shows anymore and have to like meet the founders and do that. There's like a software that can do that for you. Um, but I, I didn't have a take. I think people thought certain things that I pointed out were negs or, like, uh, judgments. Yeah. But all I'm asking for is for businesses to be honest about who they are and think highly of their customers who are likely going to figure out what they're doing at some point and not to sort of gloss over them with, like, shiny marketing. Yeah, I think that was what was really interesting about it. And also, like, I have a personal angle on this, which is that, like, I run a small magazine that, like, we all the time are trying to get into stockists at different places around the country. And, um, you know, like, distribution is something that people can do. And, like, we have done it in a very grassroots way, partially because we've never done it before. And, like, we didn't – we wanted to see how much we could play out our hand ourselves. But I think that um, most people don't have insight into, like, how do things get to places? Like, how can I get fishwife um, tinned anchovies at all? these different places around the country and just to be talking about those connections like isn't necessarily a judgment but it's not information that people normally have so sometimes it doesn't get processed in that way yeah 
I think that's correct. I also think that whenever somebody pulls back the curtain on something that we've all been exposed to, and it's like this Oz moment of like, oh, it's just it's just that they all know the same tech company. Like, it's almost like they lose a little bit of the magic. Like, there was one line in the story that I said, when you see the fishwife or the whatever item, it's like, oh, this isn't just... It's it's sort of a mirage moment where this isn't just something that I see on my Instagram stories every day and order online and it magically shows up at my doorstep. It's like, here, I can pick it up. I can look at it. I see it next to all the different brands that I like, which when you find out that it's a tech company facilitating that, it might be a little disenchanting. Um, but I don't I also like I'm a big believer in tech and I think it's amazing for all these businesses that they have that. Yeah, I mean, we're just talking about logistics, which maybe isn't sexy. And so that's why people don't want to know about it. But like, obviously, things have to get somewhere. And if you're a fan of these brands and you want them to be around, knowing that there are channels that are actually like giving them revenue isn't a problem either. Correct. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about just this idea of wanting businesses to be transparent with people. And I kind of see that as a through line in your newsletter. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the idea behind it and your kind of like perspective that you're sharing in it. Sure. Um, So I write a daily business newsletter. It's called Feed Me. um, And it aggregates uh, what I consider the most important business-related stories of the day. So I send it out around 8 a.m. It is everything from job changes that I see on LinkedIn or people's personal posts on their Instagram to much larger news stories like the fall of Silicon Valley Bank or, um, you know, acquisitions of D2C brands to large retailers. There's a pretty wide range in it. And I think that that's why it's really resonated with people. It's almost like this type of conversation that you'd normally be having in a group text. Um, And then I think another reason why it's resonating with people is because I don't just say like, here are 10 things that happened. It's like, here are 10 things that happened. And these are my opinions on it. And what I started seeing really quickly, I would say a big percentage of my readers are investors or people that work at different investment funds, is that they started replying to me saying like, oh, I agree with this, or we've been talking about this in the boardroom, or we've been making investments thinking this, and now, you know, you saying this about all your friends is making us think this. So there's like these puppeteers that have been sort of going with larger trends. And when they hear about the smaller trends, they I've started to hear them like hitting the brakes. And then um, on more of just like a regular reader level, if I have a friend who works at a restaurant or a friend that works at a social media company or a friend who's a writer, I've often heard that they can like go into their day of meetings, like feeling a little bit smarter about a slightly wider range of things than if they just hit like the cut New York Times and I don't know, the New Yorker or something. Um, I try to read a lot of business journals. I try to follow a lot of different Twitter sub communities of like D2C Twitter and restaurant Twitter and hospitality Twitter. And um, I spend a lot of time online. So this is sort of like hey, if I'm going to talk about this stuff with all of my friends all the time, why not package it up, put it somewhere on the internet, maybe make some cash from it? 
Yeah, I think it makes total sense. And it speaks to kind of your perspective as a writer, kind of having an eye on trends and then also the background that you have, like consulting and working for these different companies. And it is such a broad range, but obviously this is a kind of food focused podcast. So I'm curious if you're seeing anything that's happening maybe in the DTC world with food or kind of these hospitality spaces that you think is uh, maybe like indicative of a larger trend or something that you think is happening in like these food businesses that feels really separate to kind of other things that are going on? Well, listen, like the biggest thing in D2C Twitter right now is just that the economy is really tough. Like it's really hard right now to raise money. It's really hard to stand out amongst competitors. All these markets, whether it's beverages or packaged goods or even like general content, like being an influencer, like it is all very crowded. And to get cash and grow and succeed, like you really need to tell a unique story. So um, that's one thing that I'm really curious about this year, just like who will who will make it, who will fail, who will have to sell off to a larger conglomerate or get absorbed. Um, I'm fascinated by founder stories. I've worked for all types of founders and co-founders. Um, so I think that is something that we'll be following this year, just like the changing relationship that consumers have with founders. Like we just saw that whole Graza situation last week where um, a founder felt the need to like go on to LinkedIn and post a whole thing about their competitors. And um, that's... Just to be clear, if people aren't following this, it's that um, Brightland Olive Oil released a squeeze bottle olive oil, which Graza had as part of their core line when they launched. But obviously neither of these brands originated um, having olive oil in a squeeze bottle. Right. None of us invented a squeeze bottle for olive oil. None of us invented plastic. Um, so, you know, I, the way that that founder, um, Andrew, is that his name? Yeah. Went to LinkedIn and posted about competition and how it was, you know, this terrible thing that Brightland released a squeeze bottle. Like, that is a line that I'm really curious to watch this year, the same way that a lot of brands posted about, I think, you know, Melanie from Gia and I think Amsam was also posting about SVB during the bank melting down, like that third wall being broken. Um, also, Jenny from Jenny's Ice Cream has been posting a lot of her personal spiritual journey on the Jenny's account. Like, wow, I missed that. <laughs> I'm, that is something that I'm fascinated by. The closeness that founders have with their customers uh, on social media. So I'm going to be watching very closely this year how, because again, like <laughs> their customers are smart. Like you start posting about designer bags or $800 a night hotel rooms, like you're losing a bit of the story and connection there. So those are always things that I'm keeping a big eye out for. And you can expect those types of commentary in my newsletter. Um, what else? I'm always fascinated by booze culture and how people are going to be drinking. I've heard from some bartender friends that people are ordering water more than ever, which sort of feels like a skip from mocktails. I think people are probably like, why am I spending $15 on a mocktail when I can probably just get water and figure out what I'm going to do afterwards when I get home. So people are ordering water instead of, not in addition to a drink, but as the only thing they're As getting. the only thing they're drinking. That's a bummer for bartenders. It's total bummer for bartenders. Um, I don't think that we've seen like our cocktail of the summer yet, though. Like last week, year we had martinis and then we had 
Dirty Shirley. Yeah, I think that was last summer. Yeah, that was also. last summer. But I went to uh, Webster Hall like two weeks ago yeah. and they had the Dirty Shirley up everywhere as like their cocktail they were pushing. Oh, that's really fun. It's yeah. a great drink. It's a great drink. And my girlfriend's name is Shirley. So every time I see that, I'm always just like, it's so funny. But I don't drink them. So it's just like seeing the name, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun drink to order. It's a fun drink to say. Everybody loves a cherry. Um, So I'm curious what the drink of this summer will be. We know that there's so many ready-to-drink cocktails. I think that's a space that's super exciting. Um, Can we just rewind to the drink of the summer conversation? Like, yeah. why is that something that we're so fixated on? Why does that matter? It tells a bigger story about how people people are behaving, right? Like, if everybody is ordering martinis, which is what I was hearing last summer when I reported on that story for New York Magazine, like, what does it say about us that we're trying to get, like, wasted so quickly what does it say that we want to do that in a way that's more expensive than taking a few shots? What does it say that we're choosing to get wasted in a way that's more expensive than a few shots and also customizable? Like, we want it. We want it our way. And the larger story there ended up being like, we're not doing well, folks. Like, we're in the wake of COVID. There's a war in Ukraine. People are depressed. There's a... Uh, you know, the the city felt a little bit more chaotic a year ago than it did right now, although it sort of always feels chaotic. And it all the bartenders were sort of saying, like, this is the coping mechanism that people are asking for. Yeah, there was a great quote from, I think it was Long Island Bar's yeah. beverage director that was just like, I've never seen people drinking this many martinis. I wish I could paraphrase the quote better, but it was really funny. Yeah, he said their um, point of sale system was like through the roof on martinis in ways that it hadn't been ever. Um, and I think that cocktail is also like the glass is so sexy to hold and it kind of is nostalgic for an era that nobody of that younger generation was a part of. Um, so to me, it felt very much like I'm back out in the world and I'm swishing around my like incredibly alcoholic beverage as a manifestation of that. And it's highly Instagrammable. <laughs> yeah, I don't even drink martinis, but I take pictures of other people's because they, yeah, they're sexy. They're yeah, great. They're super sexy. And I think that's similar with the Dirty Shirley, right? Like you get a cherry, you have something bright red, and you get to say something fun to the bartender when they say, what do you want? Um, for this summer, I don't know. I hope it's not water. <laughs> that's a bummer. I mean, there was the whole white Negroni Spagliato meme moment that happened a couple months ago. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. I do. That that uh, video from the House of Dragons actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which I, that actually is one of my favorite drinks. And then when it happened, I felt self-conscious that people thought that I was ordering it to be a part of a trend. And then I got over that because I was like, why do I care what this bartender thinks of me? I love this drink. And now more people are ordering it. It's easier for me to get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I remember that starting to see it on menus. And I was like, wait, was this here already? Are you putting this here because of this meme? Um, I think that more places are going to have like these canned drinks that people are seeing emerge. Um, I just read about Fisher's Island Lemonade. Have you heard of that? No, tell me everything. Okay. So there's this island between Connecticut and Long Island called Fisher's Island. And it's like a very blue blood old money island, like further out from Nantucket, whatever. And, um... There's an old hotel on the island, and the 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 one the woman whose family owned the hotel started a canned drink based off of the house cocktail of the hotel called Fisher's Island Lemonade, and um, it's been around I think since like 2016 or 17, but it's sort of exploded in the last few years, and it just got acquired by a larger 
um, spirits company last week. I think Gallo Spirits, which has a few, they also have High Noon, I think. But that acquisition, I thought we were kind of done with those types of acquisitions because there's so many of them already. But like, it makes so much sense. It's like you're part of this place that you're probably never going to go because it's really hard to get to. You're sort of indulging in this quiet luxury thing. Um, it's the same kind of, what was that East Hampton rosé that everybody drank for a while? It's like Wolford Estate. Wolford like, Estate, yeah. You're engaging with like the Hamptons or Fisher's Island with, without actually being there. Um, also, it might taste great. We should try it. I haven't had it yet. We should try it. And it's interesting that you're saying this because it's reminding me of something that I tried recently, which is Talk House, which is uh, the old venue in the Hamptons. That's a family-run place, is doing canned drinks, um, like a tequila paloma oh, yes or like a uh, tacos encore is the name of their yeah. canned line which is a very similar story right of kind of a long-standing hospitality institution in a summer vacation-y place that's now selling canned versions of the drinks that they've already been serving with which like when you talk earlier about having founder stories and authenticity like it does feel that um so many people are getting in on the canned beverage game these days and if it's somebody that has been making that drink for a while or there's this is kind of this kind of myth building I do think that kind of works on me yeah I mean that was the whole idea behind Gia right it's like this Italian aperitivo culture that you're engaging in by mixing it with ice and seltzer and like a squeeze of lemon and it you whenever I I mean I get sent Gia a lot which I'm grateful for but whenever I like make one of those drinks I'm like oh this is sort of an experience and I'm indulging in something like far away from me um so yeah I I guess like I'm curious how all of these new canned beverages ready to drink um will also affect like the drink of the summer and bartenders because it's the same conversation about automating that is going on in the rest of our culture of just like they don't need to do anything besides open it. Yeah, I mean, for me, my drink of the summer is always a uh, pina colada or anything that's in the frozen drink case just because I have a scarcity mentality about it and it's there and I know I'm not going to have it forever. So if I was predicting maybe it's going to be some kind of frozen thing. But of course, from the bar perspective, it's a lot of logistics to have one of those machines and to be cleaning it. Yeah. So what what's the story there? Like, why is it difficult? Because I've also been noticing that there's a shortage of frozen yogurt places, and it feels like it might be a similar problem of just, like, cleaning out this massive thing. Uh, I know that my friend Adam, who's the manager at Honey's, said that they were doing a painkiller, and then they switched it to a frozen margarita because the dairy, the coconut in the painkiller was, um, I don't know if it was something about the, the temperature and it was congealing or what, but just said it was kind of, like, a pain in the ass to clean that machine. And so they switched their drinks because of that. I was at a wedding at a hotel recently and on the whole hotel property, they didn't use any blenders because they didn't want to disrupt guests. So you could only have like margaritas on the rocks or pina coladas on the rocks. Like they wouldn't even shake something. They would shake it, but there was no Quietly. blenders because they didn't want to disrupt guests. And it made me very sad because it was in Hawaii and I felt like I was missing out on something. That's so interesting. We're getting, well, this is food related in name only, but this kind of reminds me of this conversation that's been happening about pickleball and people that are anti-pickleball courts moving into parks. And the idea behind it is that um, rich people are paying for silence, which in a city like New York or LA, like the idea that like you can ask people to be 
quiet in a park is kind of shocking to me. But this concept of not even doing blended drinks at a hotel because you don't want to disturb the Hawaii silence is kind of hitting on that quietness as a luxury to me. Yeah, there was a big story in uh, one of my favorite local newspapers, the East Hampton Star, last week about a new pickleball court that they're building in the town of East Hampton. And at the town meeting last week, they they shut it down pretty quickly. But they like started bulldozing and digging up the ground and the neighbors were just like, no way, we're not doing this. But you can imagine that all the young tech guys that are moving out there want to play. So it's like this old, old money versus like new money pickleball battle that's happening all over the country, I'm sure. Yeah. And that even plays out with people have been taking tennis courts and turning them into pickleball courts. So that's even the new money, old money in terms of the recreational activity you're doing in the park. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. But just PSA, I love blenders and blended drinks and nobody, people shouldn't respond to that as like a trend to to adopt. No, I'm taking this as you're disappointed. You want more. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. Okay. So for manifesting for summer, we're talking about these drinks a little bit already. Are there any other like food and dining trends that you want to see this summer or that you think we're going to see? So I think there's going to be some sort of reckoning with uh, reservation apps like Resi and they've gone too far. They've gone too far. I have mass amounts of friends who have just given up on trying to go to the hot new restaurant because it's impossible. Because not only do you have these restaurants who are reservation only and your people set their timers to make the reservation a month ahead of time, but you now have these third-party apps where people can buy and trade reservations. And it sounds absurd, but a lot of people use them. Like I have some friends who have these apps and are are buying reservations on them, which are often more expensive than the actual dinner bill or the same amount. Um, yeah, I was going to say, what's the going rate for like... $200, $300? For like a primetime reservation. For like a primetime reservation at one of these hot places. Wow. So um, I feel very upset about that because it completely undemocratizes just the dining experience in New York. And at the same time, restaurants whether they want control over how they market themselves or not, they don't really with this whole uh, influencer economy of TikTokers and Instagram posters who can easily blow up a restaurant um, and make it go viral and put lines out their door. So even if they want to be the neighborhood spot where people can always get in, like they don't have control over these outside elements all the time. Obviously with Resi, they would, but... um, I think it's just I think that one thing we're going to see this summer is that it's going to be really hard to get a table at restaurants. And I remember last summer and I think the summer before, like Servos was one that I was fascinated by how it looked like Coachella at 7 p.m. Just like the line down the block, people wanting to get a table there, people wanting to sit outside on Canal Street. And it is a lovely experience. But the second that you you know, wait for a reservation there. Your standards also go through the roof and you're expecting a certain service, but you're also dealing with hot, overworked waiters and like you're in the middle of the street and all these things. So blended drinks, I think restaurant reservations are going to be harder to get. Um, Curious about what the, what else, what other um, ready to drink cocktails will be hot 
Well, I just want to kind of connect something I'm thinking about, which is the connection between the canned cocktails being hot and the restaurant reservations being hard to get, which is that I just spent so much more time in parks over the past year because it's so expensive to eat out and it's really hard to get a table. And also it's summer and maybe you don't know how many people you're with. And I think that something that came out of the early pandemic in New York when you couldn't really be eating at restaurants is that people were just gathering in parks and public spaces more. So maybe like one of my manifestations for the summer is that like picnic culture continues to thrive and these canned cocktails and maybe like packaged things you can take away from the cold case of a restaurant will have a revival because of that as well. I think you're absolutely right. I think we'll probably see more things like people bringing sandwiches from winter to the park, right? Or um, Which now they have the stand in the park too. Now they have the stand in the park. Which is cool. They're completely aligning themselves with that. I also think places like Mecklenburg's that have a backyard and like you can kind of order in a casual way and sit outside will continue to exist. I'm always curious how the places on the west side, like on the west side highway, will attack this. It always feels a little bit like mall-y, like corporate, but they might be able to nail it. Like I think that takeaway experience of – Great. Uh, I mean, where else do you get stuff for the park? Well, I make my things most mm-hmm. of the time. I was got really into making like chilled sesame noodles and bringing them to the beach of the park last summer, Ooh. which was really good. But um, Court Street Grocers, I love those sandwiches. Best. I'll always take that to go. Um, and also like the Dimes Deli does have those little prepared like potato salad kind of vibes. I don't really know what park I'm going to in lower Manhattan, to be honest, but I think like that's another place that's doing it kind of right. I would love for an explosion of that kind of food, like the really delicious potato salad, the really delicious chicken salad like everything in like the cold case at Erewhon but for the people <laughs> I would love to see more of that this summer um yeah well to me it's a it's a shame that Jolina closed so quickly because uh they really could have nailed that I, I think know. demo that's RIP yeah that was really fast um but yeah I think that type of stuff people will be smart if they innovate that I think another thing we're going to see a lot this summer is pop-ups like We saw a lot of those last year, but we'll continue to see those. Like, so somebody like Pierce cooking at Redora, but also our friend uh, Will Ryan, like having his Percy's pop up or our friend Gabby who does a baking pop up. I think we'll continue to see those just people taking matters into their own hands. Like, I want to build a brand, so I'm just going to build a brand like and I don't need to get a lease and hire staff and have a physical place with a lock and key, I can just activate where I want to activate and know that because I have an online following, people will show up. Yeah. I mean, I heard that Pierce's pop-up at Rodora was the most covers they've ever done at the restaurant. Really? Yeah. Which like they have a lot of big pop-ups, you know? So that's like really saying something about like the power of being able to drive that and also just the food looking good on Instagram that people come for the second day. Because I do go to a lot of pop-ups in the city and I always try to avoid going on the second day because I think that people are just posting about it and then like more people find out about it and it's even more busy than before. Yeah. I think we'll see more of those though. Um, and go Pierce. Love that. Um, which is fun. I love Shy's Burgers. I love all those places that kind of just, you get excited when you see that they're in town and they're ready to go and you can see them and like say hi to friends and maybe it's not the best food in the world or the best service experience, but like it's special. And it's that same sort of, um, shoppy shop experience of like, I've been seeing you online and now I get to physically interact with you. Um, what other predictions do you have for this summer? 
don't know. I like that you just went full circle with the shoppy shop connection. <laughs> I love soft serve. I'm obsessed with soft serve. And I think that there are more places doing good soft serve. There's a, a Philly-based soft serve place called 1900 Ice Cream that I saw is doing a pop-up. I can't remember where. At a new place in Williamsburg. It just looks so good. And I'm like a Mr. Softy girl like all the time, but I'm really planning on going to seek out that soft serve. I think the Leo soft serve is really fantastic. Um, There's so, that new place, Bananas. Yeah, the new place, Bananas, that Morgan Stearns is doing, yeah. which is all uh, dairy-free based soft serve, which I think is a really smart concept yeah. um, that I imagine will will take off. And honestly, I was by one of the original Morgan Stearns a couple of weeks ago when I was at the Haas pop-up at Lord's and the line was out the door. Um, people were like really lining up for ice cream. Whoa. So maybe that's just an eternal summer vibe. But I think soft serve specifically is, is on the up and up. Well, I think, yeah, I said this earlier. I really am sensing this frozen yogurt shortage. I also love soft serve. I go, I live in Park Slope, so I do go to culture sometimes, but I would be happy if more places started to offer. You have a pink berry in Park Slope also, like the only we one do. in New York, I think. Yes, it's, it's, there's a pink berry and then there's also a Haagen-Dazs a block away from there. It's like an odd little one-two step. Um, yeah, we do. Maybe, I, I guess I could go back there. It's just... That I, I don't know how often they're changing those machines. To the cleaning point. Yeah. Maybe this is the next piece that you'll write. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening with the frozen drink machines? Yes. Well, I think this is a great amount of predictions. And as the summer unfolds, maybe we can check back in and see how we're Let's do it. stacking up. I'll tally like every soft serve I eat from now until September. Yeah, we can we can create a chart. We'll share it with you guys. I love that. Um, so I want to ask you like kind of a dream question. If you could have a menu item named after you uh, at a bar or a sandwich shop or an ice cream shop, like anything, what would the Emily be and what would be in it? I think it would have to be something around milk, right? Like I would need maybe it is a soft serve. Um, maybe. Yeah, we'll just bring all the conversation points together. But um, what flavor? I think it needs to be like that OG Cold Stone sweet cream or something. I love that flavor. I I feel like that's underrated. It was so good. Where are all the Cold Stones? Um, yeah, I think it would have to be like a soft serve sweet cream whole milk ice cream. Okay, do you have toppings or like a crust or something? Um, that's a good question. I used to. Did you have Carvel? No, you didn't. You were on the West Coast. Yeah, West but Coast. I mean, I I've You're had Carvel as an adult. Yeah. So I loved in the they had these freezers that you could open and like take ice cream sandwiches or they called them flying saucers and sort of frozen dipped cones out of and they had a cherry dipped cone and I loved it. I my mom would get it and then I would get it as a child as well. Um, and I know that Mr. Softy, some of them do like the cherry dip, but it's not that it doesn't taste like much. It's sort of waxy. Yeah. Which is part of it. Right. Like we all know that that's what we're signing up for. But I would love to make like a really excellent cherry dip cone with whole milk vanilla ice cream. That sounds delicious. I wish I could have that right now. Well, we can make it. We we'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming by. This is so much fun. Thank you. This is great. What is up, Eliza? Not much, Matt. How you doing? I'm good. So we just heard your interview with Emily Sundberg, and it's it's a great interview. And you talk a lot about, you know, the big drink of the summer and what's going to be the, the the big this or that of the summer. So I wanted to have us talk our own opinions through. But as you've said, these aren't really factual 
takes, right? These are kind of vibe-based takes. Well, <laughs> right now that we're recording, it's mid-May. So yeah. I would say summer is not upon us. So I'm kind <laughs> of like fingered to the wind manifesting what I would like to see and what I think might be percolating from last year. But... Ooh. Um, you know, there's no hard facts. I love that you're talking about percolating because I definitely have a coffee themed one uh, I'm going to talk about. But I, I want to get your first uh, a sense of, you know, last year before we get into it. So what was big last year for you? I'm so glad you asked because I was doing a timeline in my head because I think there are a couple of simultaneous things that were happening. I think two summers ago, the first kind of like reopening from COVID, I don't even know if time is real. Yeah. That summer was the martini summer. Yeah, 21. In a big way, which yeah. is a piece Emily wrote that we talked about in the episode. And then this past summer, I think there were kind of two big drink trends. There was the Dirty Shirley. Yep. That was very popular that I think it was Becky Hughes at the time said that was the drink of the summer. Yep. And I did see that in New York at a lot of places. And then there also towards the tail end was the white Negroni Spagliato moment. Yeah, well, of course. Do you remember with, this? Yeah, with the Game of Thrones a reboot, you know, moment on, on internet and on, yes. on, on YouTube. Which I like personally profited off of that one because <laughs> I really like a white Negroni. I love Spagliato. Yeah. I think um, it made it really easy to order it at restaurants. I told Emily, I think I felt a little bit of shame that I was participating <laughs> in this trend that I already was a part of. And then I was just like, oh, I need to let go of that and just like benefit. Yep. The Spagliato is a delicious drink. Yes. It's really, really well made. Effervescent, easy to drink. It's kind of like spa water vibes. It's kind of spa water vibes. Now, the espresso martini was kind of my joke about percolator. Is it Was that like several years ago? Oh, I think that was the martini summer was like the espresso martini as a part of that. But, I mean, I was with somebody that ordered one on Thursday. I think they're still around. It's here to stay. I, I thought the 50-50 martini and the Vespers were big that, the summer of 21. And espresso martinis. Um, I was at Mother Wolf in L.A. And, man, they were, the, they were selling some espresso martinis there. They, mm. were, they, were, they were like they were going out of style. Yeah, they're slinging them. So let me just get your first sense of the – what do you want to will into the zeitgeist for this upcoming summer? Well, something that I talked to Emily about is my love of frozen drinks. Even though recently I've been talking to a lot of people that run bars about how hard it is to clean the frozen drink machine, yeah. I'm trying to not think about that. I'm trying to just have more frozen drink options. I think a frozen margarita or a painkiller is super great, but I really like um, a frozen Paloma or something yes. that's like a little bit in that kind of mellow acidity vibe. I agree fully. We're post-frosé. We're into like the harder stuff. We're ready to party. Yeah, it's just fun. I think it's, like, not always available. A lot of bars only bring them out in the summer. Yeah. And also, like, I'm a cold person, so I'm not going to do <laughs> that in the winter. Um, and I think if you're part of the school of, like, I like to order drinks that I would not make for myself, like, I don't have a frozen drink machine. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to order the painkiller. You have to do it at the painkiller. So I'm thinking similar in drinks, and I have a couple of food ones as well. But this is the summer when people get serious about NA beer. Mm. I feel that I've... I've been traveling a lot recently this this winter and, and spring, and I've been shocked by how many restaurants. It's not just athletic. It's, um, you know, Three's Brewery has an N.A. I've seen that. I've seen um, hop sodas, like these like hoppy sodas. Hop tea. Hop tea. So yeah. good. So good. And I know uh, I feel like I'm blanking on the name of the brewery, but it's in Colorado. Anyways, they do a good one. Do you have any hop teas? Brands? I, I think the brand that I had was actually called Hop Tea. Oh, it's I don't, called Hop Tea? Okay. I don't know. I think when we, yeah, post my 
post Oscars when we were doing three good things, yeah. I talked about one because talk- I'd had one at an Oscars party that was so good. It's so good. And I just think this is the summer when the menu actually gets expands beyond athletic. I love athletic. It's a great product, but there's more options out there. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think in a similar expansive drink sense, I'm predicting a lot of spritzes this summer that are maybe using Chinar or another kind of aperitif that's less sweet than Aperol. I think that like the American public has been primed to drink spritzes at this point, but that there's opportunity to be bringing in some other things. I love it. Do you have any other drink trends that you want to will into existence? Well, the Chinar spritz is like my home drink in the summer, especially with seltzer. If you want to have it be super low ABV, like just a little happy Mm -hmm. hour vibe. So I'm definitely predicting that for the summer. Maybe not Chinar, maybe a more local one like St. Agrestis or Fort Have or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That scene is so good. So good. I think those are my big drink ones. But the other one that I really am trying to, that I think is happening and that I think will happen more is soft serve. Oh, cool. Okay. So let's go there. We, you know, Morgan Stearns had the big moment with their banana soft serve, right? Yes. Which is like this whole new uh, ice cream restaurant that they opened that's all banana based or other also yeah. dairy-based saucers. Yeah, um, extreme yawn for me, extreme yawn. I, I oh, really, I want to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I feel there's like better ice cream out there. That's just me. Have you, you went to the bananas? No, absolutely not. I have zero, I have zero stakes in this. I'm just saying I, I feel the, the hype around it is, is, is kind of deafening to me right now. Mm, well, I haven't been yet, but I do want to go. And I misspoke before. It's all non-dairy saucers. That's what I thought. Yeah, so it's dairy, yeah. it's non-dairy, so that's cool. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I like Nick a lot. He's a nice guy, but I feel I just there's just too much noise there. Well, on the dairy side of soft serve, I know that there's a Philly-based soft serve place called 1-900 Ice Cream that's doing a pop-up in Williamsburg. <laughs> Sounds good. All summer. It looks so good. I'm really excited to go there. And they do collaborative flavors. They're doing like a key lime pie Ooh. flavor with Kate's key lime pie right now, which key lime pie is one of my other predictions for the summer. I think it's a lot of pie going on. Did I see on on, on Instagram that you went to Steve's recently? Uh, I did go to Steve's this past weekend. Yeah. And had a little pie. Steve's is pretty good still, right? Yeah, I think Steve's is a classic. This is like classic. on the water in Red Hook. It's right. such a good place it's to sit. It's a nice and place to chill. Lime. Yeah. But on the soft serve front, I really do think between Leo always has such good yeah. soft serve flavors. This Philly pop up that's happening. All of the Mister Softy guys on my block. I think that's the vibe. Yeah. I think soft serve is good. I still think Milk Bar does a good soft serve. I'm not against it at all. I, I think that's like their strength. The cereal milk one? Yeah. Or what they sometimes have a flavor in their East Village location like of the day mm. that can be quite cool. Um, I've had great like toasted rice soft serve in Los Angeles. Oh, I love that idea. It's really, really good. I love that you are clued into soft serve. Even like bad soft serve is still good soft serve. Oh, yeah. My parents were visiting New York and I saw a Mr. Softy guy outside of the Met and I made us all pull over and get one, <laughs> even though we were going to lunch. And my mom was obsessed. She was like, what's in it? And I was like, I don't know. Like, don't think about it. Just enjoy. It's such a good texture. So um, my my next trend, um, I wrote down full rejection of plant-based fake meat. Mm. <laughs> so I, I feel like we as a culture and like food writing, we've like been very skeptical of Beyond Meat and, and some of these other products for a while. But I think now it's kind of like trickled down to the population that like those products are fucking bad and not just bad tasting, but bad for the environment. And I feel like we are going to fully reject it as a culture. Mm. Disagree with me. I don't think that's going to happen, to be no. honest, but I guess we could see. I think I think that the great strength of 
these plant-based products are that they meet people exactly where they're at, where you don't have to think about eating a different kind of thing. You can have just a vegan version of the same thing that you want. I was at a diner in Jersey this past weekend, and they had a whole page in the menu that was just plant-based, like beyond impossible versions of everything else on the menu. And I think that like- and you that liked probably it. won't. I didn't order it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I went for my midnight waffles, <laughs> as a lady does. But I think that if you're speaking broadly, I think that they'll just be more popular. Interesting. I mean, I love that we disagree on this topic. I just feel like um, the way that it, you know, was integrated into fast food at Burger King, and I felt like that was a, a total bomb for Impossible. And I just think that we um, should rethink the way we covet the, we fetishize these like trendy items. And I think when the, you get like the publicly traded companies, uh, public, like public money gets thrown into these companies, they grow at a weird rate. And I just, I just don't, I don't love, uh, what I've re- have read about the environmental impacts of it. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's maybe a difference between disliking something and thinking that it's going to catch on or not catch on, I guess, is yeah. my point. But on the spirit of things that I would like to not see happen this summer. And <laughs> Sorry, I totally flipped it. I'm no, realizing. I like a, a hot not list. I feel like <laughs> Anna's going to come down here and haunt me. But I am I would like more than tin fish out of my restaurants this summer. That is what I would like to see. <gasps> this is so funny, and I have the paper to prove it. I wrote down, this is a quote, tin fish goes major. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so you, you this is a we're totally going pro con. Oh, no, I think you're right. I, I think from the restaurant perspective, tin fish is, uh, you know, vaguely like European and fancy and it's super easy to serve and it's like protein for people when they're drinking. Like I totally get why it's a thing. But from the consumer side, like I could go home and eat my tin fish. Yeah. I would like something to be done to the tin fish. I don't know. I just feel like. I feel like we deserve more. I agree. And I, I think we're talking about two different things because I agree like a restaurant serving conserva and tin fish is, is maybe not what we need right now. And I, that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Um, and that there's like more that should be offered than like um, a, a $27 conserva with some crackers. Yeah, it's just hard. And I, I used to live in Clinton Hill, which is kind of like the ground nexus of tinned fish offerings in New York, I feel like. And every time a new restaurant would open, it would be tinned fish and cheese. And I just was like, I want to be cooked for. Agree. I I think what I'm trying to say is like straight up, you know, tinned fish is is really, really going mainstream. I think Anna's book is just part of it. And I think it's really cool. To me, these are just like, kind of moments I think that this summer like tin fish will actually get bigger yeah I think I will be eating a ton of tin fish this summer um, but it will be in my home or in the park and not at a restaurant candy nostalgia I feel like maybe this has been a past trend but I think that like thinking about candy and thinking about like old school um like flavor profiles of candy is something that we might be seeing Mm, like root beer flavor maybe like root beer barrels or or just like you know, coated candies, like um, even like Mike and Ike's, I feel like, which, you know, are a polarizing choice. And I just feel like we um, right now, like we're seeing a, a real big boom for uh, fruit roll ups on TikTok. And I think it relates to like nostalgia of the 90s. And I think that like we'll maybe have some 90s candy pop into the feeds and maybe into our into our worlds this summer. I could see that. I was at a party recently that had candy bracelets, um, and I didn't eat mine, but I did wear it the entire day. So it's a great fashion statement. Um, do you like a f- slap bracelet? 
Oh, those are so fun. I wish I had one so we could do a little audio ASMR moment. Thanks, Eliza, for sharing uh, your thoughts on the vibes for the future summer. Oh, my pleasure. I'm going to go find a Mr. Softy truck. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.